0: You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2023 Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs exemplify the award's aim to honor innovative leaders who have taken risks to bring about a better world where more people know God's love. Visit our new YouTube channel to watch and comment on the video. For more information, go to wesleyanimpactpartners.org.
1: Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my co-host for this season, Owen Ross. Hi, Owen.
2: Hey, Lisa. Great to be here.
1: This season, we are spotlighting our 2023 class of Block Innovative Leader Award recipients. And all four of these spiritual entrepreneurs exemplify the award's aim, which is to honor innovative leaders who've taken risk to bring about a better world, where more people know God's love. And today's guest, Reverend Dr. Sidney Williams, is drawing on his background as an impact investor, as well as his experience as a pastor, to help leaders and congregations think differently about their ministry and how they go about making a difference in their communities. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. But before we move to our conversation with Dr. Williams, Owen, I would love to pick up a theme that we discussed with Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean in our first episode this season. And it's the idea of innovation in the church and innovators, not just applying salve to wounds, if you will, but, but working to change the systems that cause those wounds. So We'll hear about that systemic change work in the stories of each of our lock leaders this season. i'm I'm certain. But we touch on that a little bit in our conversation with Sydney in this episode. and and I'm curious what observations you have, Owen, about innovation and systemic change.
2: Yeah, well, you know as someone who pastored in a in a low wealth or low income community for for fifteen years, I you know, I was struggling about how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to afford this? And now as, you know, a church developer in North Texas, how are we going to fund ministries in low-income communities? Mm. And and uh, you know, Dr. Williams just says I, you know, I'm asking the wrong questions. Mm. He says that the question is, is about, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? And if you're trying to solve a problem, other people are going to come around you seeing you trying to solve a problem that they want solved. And that they're going to invest, and they want to be a part of it, and then that's where like innovation comes forth, and that's where social impact comes because the impact of the church becomes greater through these these social partnerships. And I found I found this conversation just uh, just riveting and very enlightening. Yeah,
1: and and to your point, and and he talks about this: if you're identifying the people or the community of those people as the problem. You have absolutely, you know, missed the point here, right? That that the problems are maybe food insecurity or um, access. To fill in the blank, or you know, it's it's going upstream and thinking about that. And those are the kinds of things that motivate partners in the community and neighbors and those who are closest to the pain to join in that solution seeking and where the Holy Spirit can use all of that. And I don't want to go too far down this path. I thought it was really this is
2: a great episode. Yeah. This is a great episode. Yeah.
1: So um, before we get to our conversation with Sydney, let me give you a little bit about his bio. Reverend Dr. Sidney Williams is an impact investor and theologian with more than 30 years of experience in corporate and community development. He is known for making a continuous effort to identify where theological and marketplace frameworks should interact. He is the chief executive officer of Crossing Capital Group and currently serving in his uh, 12th year, I think he said, as the senior pastor of Bethel Church in Moorestown, New Jersey. That's an AME church, and he is the author of Fishing Differently, Ministry Formation in the Marketplace. Through his Fishing Differently framework, and he'll talk about this a little bit, Williams helps congregations and nonprofits reimagine physical assets and engage with potential impact investors to build or improve buildings and fund ministry programs, accelerate growth, and the development of underfinanced communities and to address structural inequities. It's a mouthful, but what you'll hear is just he has a heart of faith and the heart of a pastor that is really trying to help people know love and grace and mercy and justice. And um, it's beautiful. Let's listen to our conversation with Sydney. Sydney, thank you for being with
3: us. Oh, thank you for having us, uh, having me in this conversation. Awesome.
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to it. So I'm going to jump right in and invite you to tell us a bit of your journey from Wall Street to where you are now and, and even on to Fishing Differently.
3: Sure. Uh, great uh, question. Um, just recently had a chance to uh, moderate a panel uh, with some financial analysts on Wall Street who were pretty much you know, well on in their career, maybe 25, 30 years. Um, half of them went to the same business school as I did Wharton Business School. And as I was moderating the panel and reflecting on my own journey from Wall Street to the work I do now, you know, many of the people I think got lost in pursuing career success. Mm-hmm. And you know, some did not count the cost of the sacrifices they were making because of the profit, of the income, of the wealth that they were gaining. And so oftentimes people ask me this question, and and really I have to give the credit to my wife, actually. And since you're people of faith, I'll, I'll share this with you. So January 97, I said a prayer. And my prayer to God was that if he gave me a wife, that I would serve him in pastoral ministry. But I needed a partner, I needed a teammate. And like many prayers that we've all prayed, I forgot about it. I'd moved on with life. And on May 28th, 1998, I met the person who I've now been married to for 23 years. And I remember on the first date, she said, I don't like investment bankers. And uh, if, I, if we get married, I want all of you, not part of you, not just the income, but I want a full relationship. And I'm like, okay, this ain't going to happen. So <laughs> at that time, <laughs> I was so focused on my career goals and, you know, work-life balance was not a thing. Uh, but love has a way of of capturing us and and I was determined that if we were going to spend our lives together I was going to put family first be I mean, god first family second but not career and you know my wife asked me to make some hard decisions about prioritizing family you know it was a tough decision because you know going to wharton business school you know working for a place like goldman sachs morgan stanley you know, being African-American in the 90s, like I was sort of the first call by most recruiters. And, but there was something in me that desired something greater than material financial success. And at the time, it seemed like an unwise decision. Uh, But when I look back and and I realize the benefits of the decision I made, I do it all over again. You know, answering the call to ministry, uh, again, is my wife who had this prophetic vision of we're going to be pastor and first lady it's going to work and i'm like no i'm too old i you know i got i got ordained at 40 i'm like no one wants a 40 year old pastor with no experience you know i should have done this in my 20s and she's like no god's going to use you i'm like no it's not going to happen and uh, i said maybe we could be missionaries they're always looking for long term missionaries and so i convinced my wife after much prayer let's go to south africa we've missionaries because they're always looking for missionaries and, and you've got to sort of be able to fund a lot of your own missionary work. So I said, at least we're in a position to do some of that. But I'll never be a senior pastor. And uh, and so after much discussion, much prayer, my wife and I and four kids and two dogs, two boxers, we moved to South Africa to be missionaries. We had a three-year commitment. And while I was there, they said, look, we really think you ought to pastor a church here. And, uh, and so after much prayer, I did. And as fate would have it, we did a pretty decent job. In ministry. And uh, that then opened up an invitation for us to come home early uh, to where I've been serving now for the past 12 years. And so, you know, this this phrase I often tell people when they're contemplating the call to ministry is, you know, God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Hmm. And so I've had my moments where I really felt unqualified to be anybody's pastor, let alone senior pastor. And, you know, if we have more time, there's many stories I could share where I know God is real. Because <laughs> like, there have been times I'm like, why did I think I can do this? And every now and then God just shows up in new and miraculous ways. My favorite hymn is Great Is Thy Faithfulness, mm-hmm. right? Morning by morning, new mercies, right? All that I've needed, his hand has provided. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going on too long. I'll stop there.
1: No, that's fabulous.
2: But, well, I, I'd like to hop right into fishing differently. I love to fish, sure. uh, and I love that's how the, you, you developed that acronym uh, around yes. fish. So will you share a little bit more about the, the framework of fishing differently sure. and how you came up with that?
3: Sure. So one of my first missions trips, solo missions trips to Uganda, I had a chance to come across some guys fishing. And probably the way they did in first century Rome, they had these little rickety handmade boats and a handmade net. And, you know, it was about dusk and and they were trying to fold up the net and they were just taking forever. And I thought maybe in the midst of everything else I have to do, I could roll over here and help these guys fold this net up so they can get out of here and get back home. And so I went over and I started trying to help and they kind of ran me off and said, listen, you're going to ruin the net. You're going way too fast. And I'm thinking, these guys, man, never gave it done, you know, just forget it. And as I walked off, it kind of hit me. I said, man, what must it have been like for Jesus to come across the disciples that would be fishing in these handmade boats uh, with handmade nets who had been out all day, tired, frustrated, they caught nothing. And then Jesus says, you know, why don't you fish differently? And, and that sounds so simple. But when you're tired and you've done all that you can, the last thing you want to hear is somebody tell you to do something differently. And so, as as I reflected on the plane ride home from Uganda, I thought about you know my aspirations of trying to be a pastor and working with older congregations, historic congregations, you know, and then they'll say stuff like, "Well, we've always done it this way, but we've never done that before." And at First blush, it's like, oh. Pull on that, you know, let's get moving. But when you consider that they really have given all their effort and they're just actually tired, right? Um, Asking someone to do something differently, no matter how inviting it sounds, it, it can be traumatic, right? Even though it may be productive, the invitation is very challenging. And so as a former investment banker, you know, Wharton grad, I would get so frustrated sitting in church meetings because it just seemed like we weren't making any progress. And people would just keep telling the same stories over and over mm-hmm. and over. again. like, I've heard that story for the hundredth time. <laughs> I've like, been in that just, meeting. Move on. <laughs> 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 and, and I remember reading a book uh, about pastoral care by Dr. Ed Wimberly. And he talked about how the storytelling was a form of pastoral care.
2: Hmm.
3: And I realized in order to get people to do things differently, they have to know that you know the story. Hmm. And so it's not like they forgot they told you. They want to make sure you know the story. Uh, So that before we write the next chapter in this journey together, Hmm. you know how we got here. Mm -hmm. And so we start fishing differently with that principle. Um, it often surprises people because they figure, you know, you went to business school, you're a finance guy, you're going to start with a SWOT analysis or a business plan. And in actuality, it has to start with healing, mm. right? Because people are tired. People are frustrated. I read a great book by Dr. Deborah Hunzinger, Bearing the Unbearable. And I mentioned her in a lot of my work. There is such a great level of cognitive dissonance in the church where people are still there. They're going through the liturgy. They might even still tithe but they are emotionally, spiritually, intellectually disconnected and just kind of going through passively and sometimes passive-aggressively through the motion. So I realized in order to get to these milestones, in order to get to the business plan, in order to fish differently, it has to start with a sense of healing, a sense of community. And I know preachers love to tell the story of Jesus and all the wonderful Bible stories, but I challenge pastors, before you tell the story, Probably listening to their stories, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that begins to unlock the journey uh, to fishing differently. So happy to talk more about that. But I'll, yeah, I'll pause i yeah, and
2: I I do uh, pastoral transition trainings as part of my work here in the North Texas yeah. Conference, and I always tell our pastors you, mm-hmm. you can't lead them into the future until they know you appreciate their past. And but I also yeah. but as you start leading them into a future. Maybe you could share a little bit more about what FISH stands for and right. how that is used and how you use that to help churches uh, live into a new future.
3: So one of the really bad habits of investment bankers, because we don't really know anything about the industries we bank, is we try to put everything into basic groupings, right? We try to boil it down to you know, a framework where we can use to apply across companies in the same sector. And so in my training to become an ordained minister, I would sit and listen to these annual conference reports and took out my HP calculator. Back then, we didn't have smartphones. And I would just punch numbers to kind of figure out what the per capita giving is. And I noticed from mega megachurch to the church of five members, per capita giving was about the same. And, and that then made me think, wow, so the goal probably isn't a bigger church. The goal probably isn't a bigger building because if the per capita giving doesn't go up, the numbers are off. Your return on assets decline as you grow the church, and then you're an the entertainment business at that point because you got to fill the seats. Yeah. So the smaller building is going to have a higher return on asset, right? Uh, but once you start trying to build bigger churches and build a bigger audience, now you're into a whole different game, and and your per capita giving hasn't shifted at all, right? And and so being the finance guy I am, I'm like, so so. what's really, where's the rubber meet the road? So uh, ties and offering, which a lot of people spend a whole lot of time on stewardship of giving money. And that's important. But where your heart is, is where your treasure is. And if you are intellectually disengaged, if you're experiencing cognitive dissonance, the money you're giving is nowhere near the potential you have to make a difference in that congregation. So faith capital is where I would say, you know, 99% of every congregation sort of hangs their hat. It's that small percentage that says, what about the hearts and minds, right? Uh, Romans 12 tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? How do we get people to open up their mind to the work of the church, to the work of God in community? And that's the eye and the fist. It's the intellectual capital. How do I get your curiosity? How do I get your ideas, your creativity? How do I get you to take risk, right? And so I realized churches that really excel in making an impact in their communities, they've created a safe space where people feel like their ideas will be heard, where uh, differences are nurtured. Like, I don't have to be a member for 50 years. My grandmother didn't need to be a missionary here. Like I could be here on day one and have a new idea that people listen to and not just tell me to go do it, but maybe actually build a team around me to help implement it. Um, so that's the eye and fish. But then thirdly, uh, social capital, I think one of the greatest mistakes missionaries make is they make this assumption, and I made this mistake when I went in mission field, is it's about the mission support I raise. It's about my ideas, my creativity not realizing that this is God's these are God's people and he's been at work or she's been at work however you want to define that but but God's been at work long before I was born right long before I got this notion I need to go to Africa to be a missionary or Dominican Republic or Cuba wherever I've been but the social capital that is God has already put an ecosystem in place um I was sharing once you know when he says his eyes on the sparrow right what does that mean, his eyes on the sparrow? And if you put a sparrow in Antarctica, it will surely die. But when the sparrow is in the right ecosystem, it thrives. And so congregations are part of an ecosystem, um, which some of the sociologists refer to as social capital. Mm. But if we are so inwardly focused, we miss what's happening in the ecosystem, Right. Uh, What's happening in that community among believers and unbelievers, among Republicans and Democrats, the gay, transgender, lesbian, straight, rich, poor, like God is working in the ecosystem in the hearts of minds and people that Paul says to the church of Corinth, eyes have not even seen yet. Ears have not even heard about what God is up to. It's not even been conceived of in the mind. And so social capital says, let's cast a wider lens and let's see what God is up to. And who God is sending to fulfill his work, right? Matthew 5, 16, right? Let your light so shine that your good work would be seen by men and women through your father have to get the glory. If nobody can see your work, you'll never have access to social capital. Mm. And what does that work? I invited a guest preacher once who just had me cringing because he was so unorthodox. (laughs) I thought I'm going to get kicked out of this church for inviting him to preach. But he says, you know what? Every Sunday church is false advertised. Mm-hmm. We promise to do the work of Christ and our building is closed for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. And then we come back and sell the same speech every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, this is not going to land well. But, but I, I took notes from that sermon. And, and one of the things that Jesus said at the end of his first sermon, when he lifted up the scroll from Isaiah, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so, human capital is about how are we fulfilling the precepts, principles, and promises of God in the land of the living, so that humanity, who walks by sight not by faith, can see the evidence of God at work in their community. And so, human capital is the measurable impact that we're having, whether it's you know working on recidivism, whether it's helping people uh, live sober lives, whether it's helping people in domestic violence situations, like. What measurable impact can you have? And and I know we have all this church language about I want to save a thousand souls for Christ. But I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Like, I think the Holy Spirit's kind of in that business. Mm-hmm. Like, our work is to be the hands and feet of Christ to do the physical labor, right? Yeah. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, right? Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just shout and preach on Sunday. You know, at least in our church, we got to shout, but maybe another <laughs> church is more of a whisper, but... <laughs> But it's more whether it's and shouting, tambourines, or pipe organs. You know, it's more than the performative liturgical rituals we do. Uh, it's it's what's the work? You know. Anyway, I'll stop there. I, I I tend to go on too long, but I'll pause. Sorry.
1: No, it's it's fabulous, and I I would love for you to to connect. The, uh, so it's it's fascinating to me that here's mm. here's a you know a Wharton grad, a, a finance guy, who's mm. Fishing acronym doesn't say in there financial capital or yes. you, you know things like that, right? Um, you, you you very intentionally, I think, and mm. you know we've had yes. conversations before, Sydney, that um, I know that you are really thinking about human beings and how they connect in their communities, and you think about equity and justice and and mm. such. So I would love for you to connect the dots between this fishing differently framework and yep. way back to sitting in annual conference doing the math on per capita giving and you realized, yep. huh, we need to be thinking about this differently. Because what I know is you're also trying to help leaders and yep. congregations actually think about their assets. And so it's not yep. it's not that, that the financial piece isn't part of the conversation. But it's Mm -hmm. different. So I'd love for you to connect the dots from that. Sitting there in that annual conference with your HP calculator and and the fishing differently.
3: Well, I mean, I wanted to create a model so I could process what I was seeing. Right. You know, I think one of the jobs of a great sports coach or team or coach of a team, you know, they'll never be a Michael, another Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, right? And while they were great players, great players don't win championships great teams win championships. And if you ever watch ESPN and just kind of listen to coaches talk, not only is it a great team, but they're great plays. People think through, okay, what what formation, what plays, how do I want to organize the players that I have to win, right? And so using the sports metaphor, I wanted a framework to understand how to organize the various assets and resources in a community of faith in a way that produces fruit, right? One of the first lessons I learned at Goldman Sachs week one, is the goal of Goldman Sachs was never to make money. Money is the byproduct of what we do. The wealthiest people in the world don't set out in the morning to make money. They set out to create value, to solve really difficult problems, Mm -hmm. right? when I ran a venture fund, the last guy you want to fund is the guy that says, all I need is money. Mm. Like that's the guy that never ever gets a check. You you want the person that says, I can solve this problem and here's how I'm gonna solve it. And then we can talk about how much capital is required to get to that solution. But tell me what your solution is to the world's greatest problem. So Mm. when I was matriculating through ordained ministry, Um, I think it's Frederick Buckner. I want to say his name. I think I'm saying that right. He says, you know, your calling is that place where your your deepest gladness, your greatest gladness meets the world's deepest hunger, right? That's right out of Wharton Business School, right? (laughs) When you're writing that business plan, when you're coming to a customer value proposition, it's like, what's the thing that I have uniquely gifted and able to solve in a way that no one else can solve, Right. And if you get that right, Wall Street rewards you for getting it right. So whether you're a Fortune 500 CEO or whether you're working out of your garage, literally or figuratively, it's, it's about what problem am I solving? And, and I think the Christian movement you know, in its genesis, in its creation was about solving a world problem that the Roman empire couldn't figure out with all the king's horses and all the king's men It could not solve the world's deepest hunger. And Jesus comes without a horse but a donkey and says, I've got a solution to solve the world's problems. And I think that solution is still relevant and valid, but I think we have taken a false narrative from the world and applied it unconsciously into the Christian mission And so we've got pastors and bishops and church leaders and lay leaders who are focused on budgets and money as if that's the goal Mm -hmm. rather than the harvest, right? Um, And so part of what I try to teach and preach is, hey, there is no shortage of money. But what problems are you solving? Mm -hmm. And all things being equal, why would someone invest in your Christian mission versus someone else's, right? Right. So for me, that was my framing, you know, when I'm sitting there for ordination and I would ask like, not so incredible questions are like, like after Sunday, I talk to my pastor and I'd be like, so what's the plan? What problem are we going to solve? Oh, we need a better musician. Oh, we got to get the new sound system. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> what, what, what problems? Like, there's a lot of problems in the world. Which are those problems? Are we gonna solve? And it was just church problems. And I'm like, we'll always have church problems.
1: That's awesome. It's, I mean, we talk about it in terms of what's the difference God is asking us to make. I mean, what what yeah. what is breaking God's heart? Where you know, where do we need to be investing? Okay. Oh, and I, I interrupted. Go.
2: No, no, it's quite alright. And 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 I really appreciate that. You know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And now I'm one of those church bureaucrats who's who's trying to figure out funding in <coughs> low-income populations whereas for 15 years I was the pastor of a Spanish language immigrant congregation, yep. you know, scratching my head every year how are we going to how are we going to keep this ministry going when when our per capita yep. giving was, you know, quite limited because of the limited incomes that of the persons who who God had called me to serve, um, but I, I really uh, was kind of taken back, ab- or taken by about your approach of community ministries and how approaching people outside of the congregation to invest in the ministries within the congregation and instead of, you know, especially as I'm, I'm working and trying to figure out how do we do ministry in lower income populations and really struggled with it myself as a pastor for 15 years, mm-hmm. you had some innovative ways to do that. And so I, I think kind of mm-hmm. piggybacking on your last answer about, you know, helping those congregations get real clear about what the problem is they're trying to solve is of utmost importance for them, but also uh, share a little bit about like the importance of networking and and then how you help churches do that.
3: Yeah, so, you know, there's another sort of concept, those closest to the pain or the greatest proximity to the pain are going to have the best way to solve that problem. Right? So I think oftentimes we think of congregations, low-wealth congregations, low-wealth communities as being a problem we need to solve. They're not the problem. They have some problems, but they are not the problem. So oftentimes I think the way we've been sort of um, discipled, for lack of a better word, is we're trying to fix the people. And we assume that the people have this sense of depravity or this sense of uh, brokenness that through our preaching and teaching we're going to fix. And yet Paul says we've got this great treasure in this broken vessel. So I think it's less about fixing people and more about asking God, how can I partner with the people closest to the pain, right? And we see that story with Elijah and the widow, right? It's like like she knew which houses to go to and, and where to collect the vessels from and how to distribute the vessels. Oftentimes, people just need an invitation, right? Henry nolan in his book, Spirituality of Fundraising, it, it's not, I'm not begging for money. It's an invitation to partner in the gospel, right? And so... So concrete example, right? We uh, got to my church eight months after arriving. You know, they told me there was no money and they were telling the truth. There was none. Um, And we struggled those first eight months just trying to pay the bills and uh, hopeful to get a salary. Eight months there, uh, the church floods. And we had four feet of water in the church and no flood insurance. And you can imagine how that church meeting went. You know, we're on fixed income, we don't have any money, we don't have any resources, our denomination should bail us out, what do we get from being part of the denomination, where is the support, da, da, da. And tensions are pretty high. And uh, I said, well, let, let's see what God wants to do in this. And, and we use, our God talk is so strong until we're in a crisis, right? Now that we're in this crisis, it's now human focus, not god focus. I said, well, let's just see, and and so in my sometimes I'll take a walk through the cemetery or by a body of water, and this time I was by a body of water, just to be in serenity with God, just to hear. You know, I believe the twenty third psalm. You know, he leaves me beside still waters, making late in green pastures. I do that. You know, um, I go hang out in green pastures in the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> I go find bodies of water just to hear from God, right. And, and I heard this message loud and clear. It sounds a little off if you're not in the prophetic, but but I heard God say loud and clear that um, this had to happen because I wanted the water to break so I could birth something new. Mm-hmm. And so I went to church that Sunday and I shared in my announcements mm. that God told me he's not going to use any member in this church financially to solve this great problem that we have. And in the service, some of the officers said, that was not wise, Pastor. You should have never told the members of this church not to give to solve this problem. And I said, I think this is a test of our faith to see how God's going to move. And I literally had no idea of how this was going to work. But I had a problem I wanted to solve. And the problem we wanted to solve was feeding people, particularly day workers from Central and South America who lived in our community, all of the pantries close by three o'clock. So if you're working, if you're a working parent, if you're a day worker living in a room without access to a kitchen, if your monthly income doesn't allow you the freedom to make the choice between food, medicine, and healthcare, um, there's nowhere to find dinner. And so I made a proposal to the business community that if you all would help us restore our church, We will serve dinner Monday through Friday. Nice. And so I share with the officers of the business. He said, pastor, there's no way our church is too small. Hmm. We don't have enough members to serve dinner Monday through Friday. I think you're being too ambitious. And I said to them, I said, listen, eyes have not seen, (laughs) ears have not even heard what God's about to do here. So let's not go off of what we think we can do, but let's go off what we hope we can do. And so that week I started sharing the vision in the form of a well-constructed email to different business leaders. And I got a response and said, look, I'm sending my project manager down. What time will you be at the church? I'm here now. Project manager came down. He looked it over and says, okay, we'll do it. And I said, when you say you'll do it, what does that mean? He says, we'll do it. And I said, we're talking about one and a half million dollars. He said, yeah, we'll do it. He says, on one condition, I'm not coming to any trustee meetings at your church. You manage the trustees, I manage the project. Sounds like a church man. (laughs) And so so I went to the church meeting, I said, here it is, guys. We've got an offer of $1.5 million to restore our church. The only vote we have at this point is to accept the offer or reject the offer. If we reject it, we've got to raise $1.5 million. If we accept it, it is what it is and, and the project will go forward. They said, we want the money, but do we have to do the project? Remember I told you, we got to solve a problem. This is the problem we're solving, food insecurity. And now we've got somebody who wants to support us, and it's not going to cost us anything. And so we called for the vote. The vote was split, but the majority said accept. And two years later, we opened the doors to the table of hope. It has been the gift that keeps on giving. i got to tell you these two quick stories, then we'll move on. they were just relentless in telling me what we can't do, even after we did it. Hmm. And so they had a church meeting and said, Pastor, we've decided we're not going to be open on Thanksgiving because we need a break and everybody's to be home with their families. And I said, I understand. You all don't want to come on Thanksgiving because you want to be home with your families. Is that right? That's correct, Pastor. So we're going to close the Table of Hope. I said, well, I think there may be some people who don't have a dinner table to go to on Thanksgiving. I think we'll keep the table open. But why don't I go on social media and see if there's anybody who can make time on their Thanksgiving holiday to volunteer? We had 25 volunteers within two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> woohoo! Look what God so can do. Christmas came. And they weren't members of the church, by the way. The members came to see if it was working. But these are not members of the church who were working. They just came to witness if this is really going to happen. <laughs> so Christmas came up. And they had a meeting. I wasn't invited. He says, Pastor, now we've met. And I know you're going to tell us you're going to open on Christmas Day. They said, but that's Jesus' birthday. And there's no way we're going to open up Table of Hope on the day of Jesus' birthday. We need to be home with our families celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And I said, you know what? I get it. You're right. You should be home. Let me make some phone calls and see what happens. So I called the synagogue around town and I talked to the rabbi. And I said, is it true that you guys order Chinese food on, on, on uh, Christmas Day? <laughs> oh, 100%. And I said, would you would your members be interested in feeding people on Christmas Day? He said, absolutely. How many volunteers do you need? I said, well, how many can you muster up? He said, give me a couple minutes. He had 50 volunteers. and that's too many. <laughs> but we, <laughs> we've we never been closed on Christmas Day. And for now, 10 years, we've never closed in the snow, in the rain, in the heat, and the cold. People have always shown up to serve, to meet the needs. We've grown from serving 100 people a week to 2,000. Wow. And now we serve in multiple towns in our county. I share that story because we're still a small congregation. Our per capita giving hasn't substantially increased. But the community has rallied around this problem. Mm. During the pandemic, we expanded from 2,000 because all the other pantries closed. And we had prepared ourselves to be a mobile food pantry right before the pandemic. Mm. So we were the only mobile food pantry in Morris County at the beginning of the pandemic. And all the other pantries closed their doors. Ours were open. So all their volunteers and donors came over to us. And so that's just a small example of leading a low wealth, under-resourced congregation. When you're clear about the problem you want to solve, there's no shortage of money. The question is, is the problem you're trying to solve necessary to be solved? Mm. And the people agree it's a problem that should be solved.
1: That's a great story. And and I, I wrote these words down that you said earlier when you were talking about social capital and, and that mm. God has already put an ecosystem in place. And you said that part of the work... Mm this is what I heard you say in the church is to helping us have a wider lens to see what God is up to. And that's what mm-hmm. I'm hearing you describe as you share these stories that, that you know, understandably, very human behavior kinds of moments with your parishioners who are saying, you know, yeah, not, not Thanksgiving Day, we want to be with their families, whatever, but but you help to widen the lens to see what God can make possible when you partner with people mm-hmm. who are closest to the pain, but also neighbors in your community who can be a part of addressing systemic issues, needs, and mm-hmm. that, those pain points. And uh, it's just beautiful. One of the things that, I mean, you're alluding to as you talk about this, as you talk about problems to be mm-hmm. solved are not the people but they're kind of some of the systems and some of those pain points. And, and you have really dedicated your ministry in so many ways to um, addressing systems of inequality. And I, mm-hmm. I'd love to, to hear you um, talk a little bit about that and why that's important and, and you know what's driving you in that.
3: So you have to appreciate everything I got in seminary, I put through the Wharton Business School lens, right? Bad habits, hard to break.
1: Oh, no. Good, good, valuable.
3: <laughs> One of the things that Walter Wink talks about is systems, right? How we engage the systems. And there are no perfect systems, right? There's nothing we can do to make capitalism perfect. Communism, socialism, any construct we create is flawed, right? There's no perfect democracy. Every democracy has its flaws, right? Right? From Athens to the United States, there's always been flaws in every system that we create. And I think sometimes in social justice work, we focus so much on changing the system as if there's a better system, Hmm. rather than saying, how do I work within this system so that there can be some redemptive justice in the midst of these difficult and complex systems, right? Another book that I love is Jim Collins, Good to Great. Yeah. Where I think even in the social justice work, some good leaders have come along the way. But, but greatness is not about how great the speech you give, how big the crowd you assemble, how much power you assemble in your community organizing. But greatness is what's replicable, right? What models can we give for people to be successful in the midst of unjust systems? And what what drives me as I transition into ministry is the number of pastors that I have heard about who committed suicide or have walked away from ministry feeling uncalled, unseen, unheard, unworthy. Um, This sort of almost, Richard Allen used this term, moral tyranny. That takes place in these ordination councils about who's worthy of ordination. Mm-hmm. When in actual fact, the systems that we're inviting people into, whether it's Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Episcopal, whatever, all systems are flawed, right? With the church militant. The question is, how do I thrive in the midst of these systems? Right? Jesus himself says, I'm sending you out among wolves. When I first read that, I didn't know what it meant. But after being in ministry a while, I'm like, oh, <laughs> there are wolves in the systems of the church. And so what drives me is how do we thrive, right, in the midst of this? Yeah. And so I've gotten a lot of accolades for thriving in the context in which I serve in the African Methodist Episcopal Church at Bethel in Morristown, in Mars Morris County or Red County that thinks Trump is the greatest president we ever had in the history of America. um, I've figured out how to thrive in the system that God has planted me in. And so my challenge to leaders in the seminary and in the church is how do you thrive, right? In the midst of unjust systems. And and that's what fishing differently really is about, right? It's, It's how to understand. Somebody asked me a question, I was in Nashville for our denomination's uh, national church growth meeting, and they said, I understand what you're asking us to do, but how do we do it in a system that does reward us for what you're talking about? And I said, I said, here's a challenge. If we covet what the system can reward us with, we can never thrive wholeheartedly in the system that was designed to oppress us in the first place. So we have to find joy and contentment in this in the assignments before us and, and be mindful of the things that we covet because these systems are all reinforcing of themselves. So we have to deny some of the benefits, some of the rewards for being a part of the system so that we can actually thrive the way God intended for us to thrive within these unjust systems. I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, and yeah.
1: I, 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 gosh, this is so meaningful Sydney and I appreciate your words mm. because as you started this, you, you've said mm. no system is perfect. And so we work mm. within those systems, um, not blaming and acting like we can't thrive because of what the system is doing, but rather saying, how do we change the system? How do we work within the system not acceptant and just, you know, go on being, you know, part of an inequitable system, but actually naming the inequities, work, you know, identifying those problems, working to solve those problems. I, I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Like, I'm pulling on these threads yeah. and saying these all exist together. And and so there is work to do together. Yep. Um, but if we kind of blame the system, it it can almost give us a reason not to do the work, as opposed to saying, you know, we're we are a part of this, and how do we work in ways that bring about justice and equity and mercy and love and grace and hope and those things that God is calling us yeah. to
3: do. And, and I just feel like sometimes we don't appreciate the tools God has given us to do that work.
1: Yeah. Having that lens right. to see what God is up to, to see what God could
3: do—that's so good. Sometimes my wife says I'm, I'm too abstract. So I just want to make it concrete. I got invited to a meeting here in our school district. Which again, you know, we're in a red county. Not everybody sees things where I see them. We had a number of immigrant children come here from Central America, who were high school age, but on the third grade reading level. Mm-hmm. And so I was invited to a meeting. Only African American in the room. And we were discussing kids from Guatemala and Honduras. The Latinx people in the room were from Colombia. They felt their immigration experience was hard. So these kids too should have to go through a very difficult experience, just as their parents and grandparents did. And I'm sitting in this room saying to the superintendent of the school district at that time, while the system that you lead Ie the school district may be limited in its ability to respond to this crisis. There's an ecosystem in this community in this county that would rally to the invitation, so that these kids don't have to be dishwashers, not get an education, and worry about paying the coyote back in back in Mexico somewhere or back in Guatemala somewhere. But rather, let's pull the, let's call the village together. Let's assemble the ecosystem so it's not limited to the the bandwidth of the school district, right? Because even school districts see themselves as an island. I can only do so much. Well, that's fine, but you're so much plus somebody else is so much plus somebody else is so much plus somebody else is so much can solve this problem. And, And that's just a concrete example, right? I think this is why Jesus says, I'll prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies, right? Because you need to love the enemies because the tools we have, it's calling people who define themselves as our enemies to a common table to say, how do we solve this problem, right? And I do a lot of that in our county. I invite the Tea Party folks, the most progressive liberals I can find, and we just come to the table and say, okay, let's think about what problems we can solve together because we care about the community we live in. And that's the tool that we've been given as Christian leaders, yeah. not, not to find ourselves picking one team over the other, but, but how do we put the black and white stripes on and go out on the field and make sure mm-hmm. there's a fair game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and make some good calls. Like, we've, we've got to be clear about our assignment in the world. And so, you know, I've probably gone on too long, but to me, fishing differently is learning how to thread the needle in a way that you can put together a tapestry, a cloth of different, different fabrics, right? That probably would never come together on their own. But how do we thread that fabric together in a way that comfort gives warmth and comfort to the people in our community who need it most?
1: It's beautiful and powerful, and um, I, I know that we could we could spend a long time on each of those pieces of fabric, if you will, and follow them and, and talk <laughs> sure. about. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Hi, we are asking all of our guests a, a final yes. question. And that is, what is a breath of fresh air in the church today that you're seeing that is nothing less than the gift of the Spirit?
3: You know, I've got to quote my uh, my, my brother and friend, Dr. Reginald Blunt. He, he has been sort of framing discipleship around this notion of social impact. Mm-hmm. And he asked the question, who do you say Jesus is? And most of us who've been brought up in church, you know, we'll say the rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley, bright morning star, wonderful things about the divinity of Christ. And we're probably all right. And then the next question he asked is, how do you, how do you emulate any of those things you just said? And no matter how much we ascribe to moral perfection on this pilgrim journey, none of us, not one of us throughout history can imitate the divinity of Christ, right? We've all come short of his glory. What we can do is emulate his humanity. What gives me a breath of fresh air is we are beginning to embrace the humanity of all believers, not judging them for our sense of moral tyranny or our sense of moral perfection, but really opening the doors to those who answer the call, whosoever will. And I'm encouraged by that. And, you know, my mom used to always say, what's done in the dark, we brought to the light. Some of the most toxic leaders in the church are being are being exposed because they've they've created a sense of no one is worthy enough, and yet some of their hidden sins are being exposed. And so I just think about all the years that I felt less than unworthy of answering the call to ministry, and I thank God for my wife who encouraged me to still press on, that it's not too late. That God can still use a wounded healer. So what gives me hope, the bright light, is that more and more people of diverse backgrounds, um, ways in which we identify ourselves, the ways in which we choose to answer the call, whether it's in organized churches per se, or whether it's in communities. However, we are answering the call, because, you know, the labor, the labors are few, the harvest is plenty. Um, so I'm excited about the many ways in which people are answering the call and expressing their full humanity in Christ.
1: Beautiful, wonderful. Me too. (laughs) Maybe so. (laughs) Thank you for being with us today, Sydney. Appreciate you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Williams.
0: Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share our episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson-White and behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.